0: Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Farmarama. In the last month we've been to two events in the UK, so this episode going to be slightly different than usual. First, we've gone a little grain mad, so we'll be sharing many voices from the UK Grain Lab in Nottingham. And then we jump across the Pennines to hear from students at an NUS Student Eats event in Manchester.
1: Earlier this month, Abby went to Small Food Bakery where the seeds of a grain revolution were being sown. Over 120 bakers, farmers, millers, plant breeders, scientists and grain enthusiasts gathered for UK Grain Lab to learn and share about the grain future we want to create, from seed to loaf. And donuts And actually, rye gingerbread. In fact, just so many mind-blowingly delicious baked goods. Or so I heard from Abby.
0: I, Abby Rose, do solemnly, happily swear that I'm going to tell everyone I see that it's okay to love flour. (laughs) Bread is not poison, invisibility is poison. I will make visible all the labor in bread from seed to mill and mill to loaf. Because mills are the levers that farmers need to get new grains in the ground and under our butter again.
1: The Grain Pledge was established in 2016 by Amy Halloran, author of *The Bread Basket*, an advocate of regional grain production in the U.S. Everyone at Grain Lab was invited to take part in the Grain Pledge to recognize that we are all part of this grain system, and we must act together. There's lots of videos of others doing this on the UK Grain Lab Instagram. Check it out.
0: Kimberly Bell, owner and baker at Small Food Bakery has been on a grain journey in recent years. It all started when Dodds dropped off a taster of a special flower. It was made from a population of modern wheats called the Wakelands Population, also known as YQ, that was bred by scientist Martin Wolf. The beauty of a population is that it's the opposite of a monoculture, in that it's genetically diverse, and therefore adapts to local environments and changing climates, whilst building soil health. Basically, a population is very resilient and ensures that farmers get a crop every year. This is an incredibly innovative project, attracting attention from around the world. Martin and the team even had to get special permission from the EU to sell these seeds, as seeds that change year on year are actually illegal to sell in the EU. That's a whole other story.
1: Here's John Reed, who runs Redbeard Bakery in Melbourne, in Australia.
2: Oh look, it's it, it, it's an incredibly exciting moment in my life because I'm actually getting to handle for the first time in my life this amazing, beautiful flower, which is the first um, time I've ever had to go at a population weight. So this is a what's called YQ. It's a yeah, it's the Wakeland population weight that's grown right here in the UK, and uh, I, I think I think it's been talked about a lot on Farmerama. Um, it's it's a it's bloody it, it, it is the future of farming because it is uh, it, it, what we need if we're going to survive climate change and global warming is we need adaptive crops that actually are not monocultures and not uh, specific variety driven but actually population driven because that that's the only way we will actually get to the point of. Uh, yeah, of having because diversity gives us this adaptability. So from season to season, year to year, we get you know this ability to to change. The population dynamics will change, and that'll that'll help the farmer because you'll always be able to harvest something. You won't have that bad year where you get nothing. You always get something, but it will change. And we as bakers have got to get used to the idea of change, you know, and, and actually adapting
1: ourselves. A big part of the Grain Lab was the baking workshops. Using these more diverse flowers needs lots of experimentation, and so bakers were keen to share tips and tricks. Kim has started investigating other forms of grain that allow more diversity and lower input systems, which led her to heritage grains. John Letts is one of the key pioneers of heritage grains in the UK. He and a few others have been sending off the grains from seed banks around the world, and planting these very old varieties for years building up seeds to a point where they're now being grown commercially.
3: I think there's a, bit, a lot of debate in our community about the right way to move forward in terms of should we be looking for old varieties, um, are the old varieties even old varieties if we've taken five grams of seed from a gene bank and grown them up, um, if Martin's population has been originally bred from modern wheats. Does it really have genetic diversity? And there's all this debate going on in our community. And I think the one thing we all agree on is that genetic diversity is good. So that's the sort of starting point. So it was kind of obvious to us that as a bakery, if we were going to use the YQ, we also should use John's heritage population. And we've become kind of obsessed with combining the two. And I'll talk a little bit about ways in which we do that. But um, this is the flour. We've got piles of it all over the place. So I'm just going to pass it around and encourage you to taste it. Um, it's quite interesting. Um, so could you pass me that jar of wheat that's on the window? We keep this in the window which John gave me uh, which is from one of his fields. It's not quite everything that's in the population but it's an example of diversity and we show this to our customers when we're talking about this product because you can you can literally see some of the history of wheat sorry in this. But yeah if you want to pass this around have a look it's just so beautiful every single one is different and yeah, when I, just, when I saw kind of what I see as our little pet project, the YQ, growing together with John's um, kind of heritage stuff, which shows you like iron corn to Emma, right through to spelt, to all of the uh, diversity that he's ended up with by growing them together. It was kind of like, I don't know, it was just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in terms of like uh, a crop, I think. Uh, so here we are, we're like back to the bakery how are we going to use it and I think brioche is a really good starting point for using alternative flours. I think it's a brilliant showcase, something with fat and it carries flavour so if you have um, if you have something with butter in it you can actually pull out the flavour of the flour quite well, I think the flour tastes very cakey um, and that's one of the things I like about it and I think also makes uh, fabulous doughnuts I'm going to hand um, hand knead this because it's one of the, things, the differences between the roller of flour and the heritage flour is that you need to be quite a lot more gentle with it. And the next stage of this is going to go into a bulk while we go and have dinner and then I'll pop back tonight and bung it in the fridge. In the morning at 8am I'm going to be shaking them if anyone wants to come and help, come and help uh, over a coffee. And we'll hopefully, if everything works, fry them up tomorrow afternoon for a kind of farewell donut party. And then you get to taste
0: them, so... <laughs> It was clear at the gathering that we need to build food networks, not food chains. We need farmers, millers, bakers, breeders, all talking to each other, just like Kim has done with Martin Wolf, John Letts, Mark Lee at Greenacres Farm and other farmers she works with. Another brilliant example of this is E5 Bakehouse in London, who are great supporters of the show. Here is Oscar Harding, farmer at Dutchess Farms, and Ben McKinnon, owner and baker at E5 Bakehouse, to tell us about how a conventional farm ended up working with an organic bakery on a joint learning journey.
4: It's a arable farm, conventional farm in the most part, but over the last three years we've been moving towards doing heritage crops with zero input, and that journey has sort of led to, to the start of a bit of a regenerative farming programme, that's kind of where I'm at today. It started really from achieving really good yields one uh, year 2013, 14 year about that sort of time. But a few years ago, really good yields and the farm didn't make much money at all. I mean, it had a bit to do with the price, the commodity price being low, but it also had a lot to do with the input costs and writing a you know essentially a huge check. Um, that the, the farm had to has to write. I had to write every year for fertilizer and, and uh, various sprays. I mean, the sprayer would be out a lot. You know, herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, and then the fert, fert spreaders out a lot. So that's a bit of a vicious cycle. You feed the weeds with the fert. You know, and so that kind of led to thinking more, more about profit per acre as opposed to tons per acre. Culturally, amongst arable farmers it's all about how many tons per acre you get and everyone wants to show off about that and and no one talks about profit per acre and 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 in other bit in in germany i think they're quite good at talking about profit per acre as opposed to tons per acre so that kind of got me thinking a bit more about that and once you start thinking about profit per acre and realize that achieving massive yields it doesn't necessarily equate to that then you have to sort of rethink how you do that and so that's how i ended up finding out a bit about heritage wheat, but, but also we we press cold press rapeseed oil and done that since 2012-13 and um that sort of showcased adding value to acres so you know you can have a, a ton of seed or a ton of, an acre and you get maybe a ton ton and a half of rapeseed off of your acre and sell it on a commodity market for 300 350 quid or you know do something to it bottle it sell it and that, acre effectively becomes sort of hundreds of thousands. so so that I suppose made me rethink and look at the acreage differently um and then and then in how to farm without input you can't do that with modern dwarf wheat varieties so heritage wheats kind of came up you know sort of poking around on youtube and stuff and so I've met Ben and and then I was like well look I want to farm this way and grow these kind of crops would you buy them if I did it and he was like yeah so the next thing a ton of seed that he had arranged turned up at the farm and i planted it and that was it and then he committed to buying whatever i produced uh really in a kind of it was chilled no contracts or anything like that it was just a gentleman's agreement type thing and so it was a really nice way to get into it and so that was yeah three years ago and and the deal's still the same i grow these heritage crops a handful of different varieties now and E5, well, I'll say, roughly we're planting this amount of acres, so roughly I'm probably going to have this many tonnes, and they plan their year of baking and recipes accordingly. So it's like really super flexible and, and suits me really well. And the, because of no input cost, just a bit of tractor time planting and harvesting, which in the scheme of farm costs, is the, they're the small ones. So, yeah, the profit per acre comes up, and it, it's sort of a model that looks like it can... It, it works, so so we we sort of are trying to do more and more. I've realised it more just as of yesterday and today being being here. But there's a guy Mark who spoke yesterday in one of the in the group discussions, and he was saying he considers himself a food producer over a farmer, and that that was quite interesting. And I, I hadn't really thought about that to be honest. But no, it, it feels really good because and really the connection with Ben, you know, with the oil, we you know we farm it. We add value to it by making it into oil, then we, you know, distribute it, and so you have that connection. And so we know loads and loads of chefs now to do with oil, and so we go to the restaurants, and they, they go, "Oh, have a look at this! We've made an ice cream or something," you know. And so that side of it's really fun, and to be able to do that, you know, again with wheat, go to E5, and I was there a couple of weeks ago, and they were sort of showcasing some of the varieties. So they had grown, they had done loaves that are just purely oland or purely lisbon and to sort of see those and everyone's standing around going oh wow and you know with far uh, far more knowledgeable people than me and far more developed palettes and things but just hearing everyone sort of really saying all this great stuff about it and you think oh cool like well, everyone's into it so let's keep doing it so yeah it does feel good and 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 whereas with the alternative conventional farming it's just you just look at farmers weekly commodity prices and that's about the, all the engagement you have no idea where it goes to yeah whether it's going off to felix to go straight on a boat whether it's doing anything in this country oh you just don't know or care you just you, all you care about is is it, is it a couple of quid more per ton than it was you know last week and yeah it's fairly and and often it's not so if <laughs> on the basis of that's the only thing that kind of cheers you up a bit farming wise and it really happens it's a bit sad so it's nice to not be too involved or be less involved in that now. Before meeting Ben and going to E5, I, I didn't see that zero input uh, you know, arable farming could be profitable or, or even nearly successful. I mean, there's a there's a bit of a sort of, I don't know, like a stigma about whether you can you know, make money from organic farming or zero input farming or whatever. I mean, it's very much the sort of culture is you've got to get... That five tons an acre and so so no I mean I, that's my I mean I, I, I was chatting yesterday to a couple of farmers and there's a thing that economists and, and and I and we all sort of get excited about or used to and it's this concept of a stale seed bed which is seen as a really positive thing for arable you know growing wheat because so before you plant in late September the everything you're doing is trying to trying to create a stale seabed and it's only when you have a step back and you realize what that means and you think oh like you know it's really bonkers now in hindsight that that was such a thing but that was something like i mean that was something that i was proud of you know i'd be like we've done a really good job you know we've cultivated at the right times we've sprayed glyphosate at the right times and we've cultivated again and like yeah we've got perfectly stale seabed perfect for the couple weeks ago And, and yeah and then having a step back and then realizing what you know those two words you know what that is stale seabed, you know it's bonkers really in hindsight but you know prince charles or who has a big organic farm and everyone's like yeah well, fair enough you know if you if you're him you can you can run an operation like that or um there's an old f1 driver amazing amazing guy with an incredible farm yeah sure if you've got millions and millions of quid then you can do it i mean there's that saying there's some sort of saying if you want to make a small fortune from farming you need to start with a big one you know and, and so that culture is very much part of you know modern arable production so no i didn't see that it was achievable at all until i met ben
5: i'm ben and i'm the owner and i'm a baker and a miller and a farmer at e5 bakehouse what we did is uh we looked at how much that farmer would normally get per acre from his land the farmer being oscar of dutchess farm and uh we said well look you know i mean He was he was very happy to get, you know, the the same or a little bit more than he would have got, you know, from his the the conventional wheat he was growing. So he would have, you know, been planting on his uh, conventional farm um, a feed wheat, let's say, and and getting about four tons per acre. Um, So so with this zero input system that we asked him to to do with with no sort of uh, fertilizer chemical fertilizer or, or herbicides fungicides so on you know he, he obviously cut his costs a lot but the yield was a lot lower but we, that, that was fine for us and he he gets a little bit more than he would have got conventionally and and at the moment we're all quite happy with the situation artisan bakers have been uh, inspired by the likes of the new wave of American artisan bakers, so who work with really high-protein uh, flours with a lot of gluten in. We're kind of having to, you know, learn by ourselves now, which is obviously really fortunate. So kind of understand more about how those with more sort of gliadin and, and sort of different proteins behave and how we as bakers need to handle those doughs to get good results and that's you know one of the things that draws a lot of us to baking is to sort of the challenge of, of actually you know working with these arguably like weaker flowers although they actually have usually higher protein the old varieties like up to 16% quite commonly than the, the modern uh, types so our sort of thing when we first got it it was quite difficult so we blended it over the past few years we've been blending it with stronger modern wheats but we've just you know really turned a corner with that and, a, and a understanding now how to work with them on their own which means we can draw out a lot more I mean they're, they're abound with flavour um, really nice sort of aroma very herby and sort of buttery flavours and delicious texture you know they work really well and it's just we're stoked to be buying grains from a farm you know, 20 miles down the road from us in you know, East London. That's really fun, but there's also other grains out there and other farmers, and it's really pleasing to get to know them and, and be able to sort of expand our network. Um, we're having a go farming as well. As, as bakers, once we begin to feel empowered and, and have the opportunity to work with farmers, we feel, and our customers feel like, yeah, we are in the part of a food system, and we are actually you know, the change that we want to see. So it's really exciting. I think diversity is a word that comes to mind. There's just been so much homogenization of varieties and methods of farming. You know, we know that the soil isn't kind of rich and full of hummus and mycorrhizae. We know that that's probably where we need to be going with sort of much lower input farming. And so one of the solutions to that is older varieties with their deeper roots, uh, more diversity, Amongst farms, so not just you know a handful of um, modern wheats available on the marketplace, but you know farmers sowing their own seeds, land races, populations, old varieties from the archives, you know, as as well as new creations, and that gives a uniqueness to to all manner of things. It gives it gives us a story to our customers, and feels we feel linked to the the farms and the soils that they're grown in and uh, it gives farmers the chance to, I hope, be, be really proud of what they're growing and you know, seeing it in, in products further down the line, not just bulk grain going off at you know, rock bottom price onto the commodity market. You know, it's about having platforms to communicate some of those ideas, but obviously just giving it a go as well.
0: On the Saturday night, we all feasted together on an array of baked goods and delicious produce brought by the many farmers in attendance. We were also serenaded by Nathan Mann of Dead Rat Orchestra.
6: Well, part of the kind of uh, promise-ish that I made was I would try and write something in response. So you may have seen me lurking around at the back of your sessions. But one of the interesting things I heard was um, not only talking about the positives, but also sharing the negatives um, and sharing the risks and talking to that, talking about that when you're talking about the stories, you know, that it seems so important to share. You know, because there's no connection with, through the consumption chains with nature, with what's going on. So if it's a bad harvest or a bad season, you know, that may be reflected in, in, in what we're consuming. And, and the consumers, hey me, it's good to be aware of that too. So. And that really chimed with me because, as an experimental musician, I'm always putting myself on the edge, and I try and induce a sense of camaraderie with the audience. But we're kind of in this, in this together. It might fall apart. Probably will. And if it does, well, you know, there's some, there's a, there's a grain of something that's more important happening anyway. Um, so, does anybody know the song or the phrase uh, "bread and roses"? Yeah. Do you know where it comes from? The, the name. So, uh, so I, I, I did a bit of digging, and I found this song "Bread and Roses," which comes from, if you forgive me, what I call it. It comes from a. It was a, It's a political slogan first coined by uh, Rose Snyderman um, in the States in 1911, and um, and in one of in her speech there was a line, and she said, "The worker must have bread, but she must also have roses too," and it, and it was picked up as a kind of sign that not only should there be a living wage but there should be enough money to live dignified as well and to feel good about yourself. And so the roses came to symbolize, you know, not just the basics, but, and, uh, and I thought that I would adopt that because it seems quite a nice way to reflect the the community values and all the other added value that you're all talking about beyond, you know, the, the grain or the bread. And so um, I've attempted to rewrite except for the first verse, which I've kept the same because it's so apt um, Bread and Roses
7: As we go marching marching in the beauty of the day A million darkened kitchens and a thousand mill of spray, A touch with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses for the people here us singing, Bread and Roses, Bread and Roses And as we come marching, marching, in our fight against white flour We must share our stories, for our stories give us power Through stories we're connected to our food, bodies, and land And we remember as we sing of bread and roses We've dreamed of grain gorillas and of bread on the NHS And learned that to convert our lands we must first convert our heads our foods from land, not packets, but so quickly that lies spread. But these songs aren't simply roses, and our bread's not simply bread. Dark markets have transformed our foods into commodities. Our farmers all anonymous, and the mills, me factories, all connection with our lands was swept right from beneath our noses. But we'll heal the rifts while singing bread and roses, bread and roses. We'll heal the rifts while singing bread and roses. And as we come marching, marching, our leavened voices spread Our cries go ringing through the streets, that ancient call for bread Small art, small food, small beauty, from our hearts and lands all grow. And yes, it's bread we fight for, but we fight for roses too And as we come marching, marching And we battle for our grain And we join in with the struggle And together we shall win We've pledged to be ambassadors And to rebuild our closeness Hearts starve as well as bodies So give us bread and give us roses
0: <laughs> Rebel Kitchen are a member of 1% for the planet This means they donate 1% of their sales, not just profits, to partners contributing to the planet. It's through this commitment they're helping to support us to continue to share knowledge in the farming community and spread the word to many more farmers and growers.
1: Student Eats programme supports students in setting up food enterprises in their university or college. In doing so, they embed sustainable food into student life and reconnect communities with the food they eat.
0: In October this year, the Student Eats Conference, hosted by Manchester Metropolitan Uni, brought together this community to talk all things, from growing and eating to making and selling.
8: How would you describe your feelings about today? Overwhelmed, because like, the after getting to know these new people like like like-minded people and then like i really want to apply those things to what we have right now
4: it feels it feels uh really kind of reaffirming to know that um i'm part of a bigger kind of group and movement
3: it's been really interesting hearing what other people have done not just from the keynote speakers which were really really interesting at the beginning but also getting to talk to other people during the day and hearing about their experiences and what kind of things they're doing
1: Claire and Charmaine from Canterbury Christchurch University tell us about their project, the Gastro Hub.
8: The Gastro Hub is a little bit different. It's not a shop where we actually have a space where we sell. We actually pop up in communities and around campus doing experiential community events. But the base of our um, project is that we work, we're trying to reduce food waste and bring people together. So we work with surplus fruit and vegetables from farm level. Our ingredients are from um, farms, around kent and there's a big issue right now of farm level food waste people think a lot of the food waste comes from the supermarkets onwards but actually there's a lot that doesn't actually leave the farm so we have a great partnership with gleaning kent which is a subsidiary of Feedback Global, the environmental and food charity. And what they do simply is send out an army of lovely committed volunteers and go and glean and rescue beautiful fruit and veg that would have otherwise been wasted. So we are actually now getting more involved in that sauce. So yesterday, myself and a couple of our members, our chefs, were in an orchard in Kent, Selson Farm, and we were gleaning beautiful varieties of apples, which we'll be using in one of our stew recipes.
9: Well, I, with my role, I'm working with Charmaine to become the Marketing and Communications Officer. Through that, what we're doing is we're branching out into partnerships with local communities, local groups, and more more locally with the Student Green Office um, within the university to engage more student volunteers and basically build up an army of willing volunteers that will come and help us at events build up partnerships and get more people involved in what we do?
8: I would say you have to have courage, because anyone can have an idea and that's fine, but you need to have that courage to get over your own limiting beliefs. And a big thing, I'm actually a business management student, so I've been learning a lot over my through my degree. And the biggest thing that I, said, I would say is you've got to really focus on your marketing as well. People sometimes leave that as the last bit, but the marketing is a big part. Um, and also planning. I'm not always the best, I do loads of things at once, but I've really learnt through this enterprise that planning is so important. So be courageous, but also keep your head on and and make sure you've planned well and accordingly and don't be um, afraid to think far in the vision and run the movie, as one of my lecturers would tell me.
9: Believe in what you're doing, believe in the brand
8: that you're getting across, and
9: if you do that, anything is possible.
8: (laughs) What I've really learnt and what I'd encourage people to do is don't just make it just about the food make it about people as well about bringing people together and and make the whole event experiential especially if you pay as you feel i found that people sometimes feel like they're not paying me enough because they had all these other stuff with bells going on around the soup or the stew so i would just say really think outside the box in what you're doing don't just always make it about the food how can you bring people together how can you develop community
9: Share what you do, um, because even if you think that you're just going up by little steps, then if you, whatever you do, share it and get the message out there, because every little helps.
0: It's a real pleasure to hear from students involved in the food system, whether that is growing on campus or supplying food from local farms. And it's also great that student unions are supporting these initiatives around the country.
1: This month's show was made by me, I'm Joe Barrett, with Abby Rose and Katie Rebel. We had help with editing from Louis Hudson. Community support is handled by Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Olivia Oldham. And our theme music is by Owen Barrett.
0: Thanks to Odette Wills, Agnes Kroll and the Student Eats team at the National Union of Students for getting in touch and picking up the mic and reporting on the event for us. If you have a project or a story to share, please let us know. We're here to help you make that story heard all over the world. Toodaloo!